And that I think is something that when you do the math on the scale of where humans are and how quickly things are changing in some of these countries, the fact that that additional billion and a half people that today live in total energy poverty, another billion on top of that that are, are merging into the middle class, right? You've got a huge wave of humans coming into a position where they're going to be getting heat and light and air conditioning and roads and buildings and planes and vacations. And those are the things that when you aggregate them up across a billion people have in the last 20 years skyrocketed our emissions. And the emissions are a proxy for our energy use. And so you see everything across the energy stack, biomass, coal, oil, gas, new forms of energy. There's a vast demand for all of it everywhere right now. And I think that that um, that is one huge kind of mega trend. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with energy and geopolitical analyst David Knight Legg. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with David, in which he explains why the war in Ukraine may be a resource grab by Russia, likely to seriously alter the global balance of trade, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment options we discuss in this video. And be sure to stick around for the second half of this video where we address the seriously hawkish comments released this week by otherwise dovish Federal Reserve Vice Chair Lael Brainerd. Is the Fed more willing to sacrifice the markets in its battle against inflation than financial assets are currently pricing in? For all this and more, let's get started watching part two of our interview with David Knight Legg. What's your outlook right now for commodity prices? Do you do you see them after this? Let's assume that that there's a ceasefire in the Ukraine, hopefully soon, as we look maybe six months down the road. Will things equilibrate back to where they were before? Or do you think that we're at a at a new baseline now, given the new volatility, uh, new alliances and just new uncertainty and distrust in the world? That's it. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've been cutting my teeth the last three years in Calgary, Alberta. And just so your listeners know, you know, I, I showed up from a banking background. And, and um, so that, that means you're not trusted on the street in Calgary. And then uh, in addition, you've got all these hardened, smart oil and gas guys uh, who, um, you know, if I come up with a good idea, if I come up with a good answer to that question, their immediate sort of skeptical approach will lean over to me and say, you know, you're so smart. Why aren't you investing? <laughs> so, yes. well, you, so that, I you kind of know I where am. my next question is going to go after this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, no, I am now. I am, you know. So I just want to like clear, clarify for your for your uh, viewers that look, I think that I think that there's one kind of mega trend that has been largely uh, not acknowledged enough in the in North America, and that is that it is deeply meaningful that the principal ambition set aside the fact that I hate communism in all its forms. And I think it is the most dehumanizing philosophy in the planet and has nothing to show except tragedy for its existence, right? But, you know, every country that's tried to embrace it and it's never worked because it's just a sick theory that isn't tied to any kind of reality. But if you are in a position where you're trying your best for your people and you're part of the Communist Party of China, right? Uh, Chinese Communist Party, or you're trying your best for your people and you're, you're Modi, or you're trying your best for your people and you're in Indonesia or Vietnam or the Philippines or you know Bangladesh, right? Doesn't matter what the political philosophy is, you wanna see those people come out of poverty. You wanna see, and maybe it's because you just want st social stability, which is often what CCP wants. But the point is you're trying your best to make sure that whatever the outcome is, there's generalized rising prosperity. And that I think, is something that when you do the math on the scale of where humans are and how quickly things are changing in some of these countries, the fact that that additional billion and a half people that today live in total energy poverty, another billion on top of that that are, are merging into the middle class, right? You've got a huge wave of humans coming into a position where they're going to be getting heat and light and air conditioning and roads and buildings and planes and vacations. And those are the things that when you aggregate them up across a billion people 
have in the last 20 years skyrocketed our emissions and the emissions are a proxy for our energy use. And so you see everything across the energy stack, biomass, coal, oil, gas, new forms of energy. There's a vast demand for all of it everywhere right now. And I think that that, um, that is one huge kind of mega trend. There's a, there's a micro trend, which is this fixation in Western um, kind of this post Davos, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I always say, you know, it's amazing what happens when people are driven by status anxiety, you know? Um, you're in Davos, you really want to be in that one cocktail party and someone's like, just declare net zero and you're welcome. And everyone's like, we're net zero by 2050. And no one has any idea what it means, right? What does it even mean to be net zero? No one's got, no one's got a thought. There's definitely not a plan. And the worst actors in this space are the financial services guys, right? Because they're like, net zero is easy. I've got a bunch of human capital people that walk into 50 skyscrapers. That's all we do. And I'll, I'll put in LED lights and talk about my footprint. Right. And meanwhile, some dude who's got, you know, 400, 300 ton Komatsu trucks on 26 global mines, including the largest open pit on Irma, is like, wait a second. Right. <laughs> it's not possible for me to build your Teslas for your executives at your bank to drive without extracting 500,000 tons of earth to do it. Like you guys know that. Right. And they're like, I don't know. Does it seem like you're doing your part for the planet? Not like us guys over here at BlackRock. Right. Like we really care more. It's embarrassing, right? It, it would be funny if it wasn't actually happening. Right. But that's the micro trend. The micro trend is here we are in the West living the luxury of standing on the shoulders of generational giants that built these societies, built these economies, built these great companies. And we're sitting there, especially if you're in the financial class, which I was a part of, sitting on the very top of it, usually managing other people's money and paying yourself a big bonus for being so smart about doing it. And while you're doing it, you've now gotten self-righteous because you got religion on how green the planet can be. It's totally embarrassing. It's totally embarrassing, right? There's nothing real about it. There's nothing scientific about it. There's nothing truly righteous about it, right? And I think that micro trend is something that as a society, let everybody else worry about bringing another 2 billion people out of grinding poverty into prosperity. They're doing God's work may not like the institutional structures of their government, may totally disagree with the philosophies that were the initial foundings of those government, all those things. But what are we doing? What are we doing in the West, right? Giving little lectures to countries about how they need to be more green. That's an embarrassing thing to be doing, right? We sit in this extraordinary privileged place because other people built these great societies when we had coal mines and you know, steam-driven steel manufacturing, right? Like, what are we talking about? I think we need to get very, very real about what the planet looks like, about how and why people are relying on coal, which is where the emissions are coming from. We need to acknowledge the fact that the United States has led the planet in decarbonizing by substituting coal for gas that they actually produced. That's been an incredible thing. That's something we can actually export to the rest of the planet, which is great commercially and also great for the planet itself. But that, that mega trend is gonna drive commodities across the board for a generation. It's also gonna drive oil and gas, conventional energy, coal, other things across the board. But if you listen in the West to a lot of the financial services set, they're so keen on being on the right side of the status anxiety Davos trade that they keep doing soft light, even energy companies in the West are doing soft light commercials about how they're leaving all this stuff behind and they're gonna be investing in, you know, and there's sort of classical music playing and pictures of wind turbines on sunsets. And it's an embarrassment because that's just not at scale what's actually happening in the planet. That's intermittent. It doesn't give you baseload energy. It's not helping the grid in 90% of the planet. And it's totally unaffordable for most of the places that currently have to use coal to make a difference. Fantastic answer. Um, and I'm just going to use the word commodity super cycle uh, to describe what it sounds to me like you're predicting here. Um, and you put sort of like a 30 year ish time frame on that. I mean, that's the rest of most people's watching this, you know, our productive lives, um, which is which is great to be able to lean in to say, hey, look, there's going to be this this force of nature, this tailwind that we can kind of count on for the rest of our investing lives. We better not ignore it. Right. And your your micro trend there. Um, uh, is is really only going to add wind to the macro trend because the more in which we divert ourselves by 
uh, you know, what might be sort of self-interest countering virtue signaling, uh, that's just going to lead to things like future shortages and whatnot because we're not making the right investments today and that will likely come back and bite us, right? So um, I've had other commodity specialists, Rick Rule being one of them on this program, we talked about, hey, even, even where we are right now, even if we kind of got religion and started doing everything right tomorrow, there's a number of key commodities that we're going to have concerning shortages in in the next two to seven years because of the past starvation of capital expenditures in those industries. Um, and it's yeah, true. yeah, I agree with them. I also think you're going to see a lot of companies. I mean, this is just a subset for there's probably, you know, a few few uh, vulture capitalists on your program, too. But I think you're going to see a lot of companies go private over the next three to four years because they've had it with dealing with, um, you know, the virtue signaling aspects of this stuff. And there's going to be extraordinary capital coming into this space. I had a conversation with a collective of family offices. I'm, I'm now starting to move back into more of a commercial role, but I had a conversation with a collection of family offices in Hong Kong um, and they are not interested in ESG. They're very interested in realism about what's happening in the planet and, and how to invest in energy. And you're going to see extraordinary pools of capital start to look at uh, the entire energy supply chain, commodity supply chain, and, uh, and going to be investing very heavily and looking to buy some of the best companies and give them the capital they need to expand and grow their production. So I think there's probably a lot of good you know, publicly traded firms right now that are going to be the targets for some very key buyouts in the next three to five years. All right. Well, that's a great uh, tidbit there, too, which is, hey, to expect M&A in this space. Um, and, yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, I've got one last question for you. But before I ask it, um, you have mentioned several times you came in through the banker finance door. Um, beyond kind of the macro trend that we've talked about here, and it sounds like you're particularly, I'll say, bullish uh, on the energy sector, um, you know, we've got a bunch of people who watch this who are just trying to 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 be good stewards of their wealth going forward. Um, yeah. They're they're looking for opportunity, um, but they're also looking to protect themselves against some of the uh, what you could maybe call you know ripple effects of some of these you know big issues that we're talking about in the macro sense. Where look, if if commodities get more expensive, you know. And we didn't even talk about debt, you know, in, in this discussion, but, you know, you get risk of recession, you get risk of, of uh, you know, you know, potential big commodity shortages that, that drive inflation even higher from where it is right now. So, you know, I'd say even more so they're looking just not to get kind of wiped out in, this, in some sort of corrective event. But um, do you have any parting bits of advice for the investor that's trying to navigate this landscape that you've laid out for us here? Look, I think if, if it's a risk management strategy, and again, I'm, I'm in over my skis, someone like you, Adam, would know more about how to advise people looking for, for specific insight, but sort of a generic insight would be if it's risk management, you've got some of the best companies in the world that since 2014 have had to really tighten their belts, lean up. The management teams have lived through some very hard years. There's been a lot going on. And I am a particular big fan of the companies that I know best from proximity to them. I would say, look at the Canadian energy sector, particularly in Alberta, um, the innovation for the big pipeline companies, TC and Enbridge is extraordinary. They, they, have, they can get business all over the world, except in the United States these days. A little, little poke at you, my American cousins there. Uh, you know, they're helping build infrastructure everywhere. They're the best in the planet at it. Um, I think the big oil, integrated oil and gas companies there um, are extraordinary. They're deeply undervalued. There was so much money chasing the shale gas situation in the States with the Permian. And I think a lot of that has really come off in the last two years. And so I would say, and again, this is not, not in, from informed perspective, but I would say for those that are looking at relatively safe, high dividend yielding assets with, I think, very strong fundamentals in an, in an energy super cycle. Some of those companies are really overlooked. They're sort of off the radar, partly because they're in the oil sands. Again, even though some of them are the cleanest, especially their new, uh, new assets, very low decline rates compared to a lot of the US assets. So what you see is really what you get for quite a long time. And um, I'm very keen on it. And I'm very keen on having our deep-pocketed American friends investing heavily in Canadian energy. <laughs> okay, good. 
Well, Alberta is going to give you their check there for the commission check for for being this the able spokesman you've just been here. No, but that's wonderful. It's exactly what I was looking for, which is based on your area of expertise. Where do you see you know particular opportunity here? You just shown a great light on there. So thank you. Well, look, David, we could go on forever. And uh, I know I'm going to get a bunch of comments saying, why didn't you keep this guy on for another two hours? It's because you're so busy. I really appreciate you giving us as much time as you have here right now. My pleasure. Well, I appreciate what you do, Adam, to communicate this stuff. And I no one knows the whole story on these things. I just want to say we approach all these things with total humility, right? Um, you can't read the mind of a dictator, but what's within our control, I think there's huge opportunities for us to change this game and force him and others to start playing by our rules instead of the current situation where we seem to be playing by theirs. Well, that's what I really appreciate you about you, David, is not only are you helping us sort of understand the complexity of the situation. Hey, it's not just as simple as, you know, Putin bad or Putin crazy, right? Um, but you're also advocating for specific policy changes that can make the future better than we're currently making the present. So thank you for that. So for folks that have really enjoyed getting exposure to you through this interview, who would like to learn more about you and follow your work, where should they go? Well, Adam, I'll talk to you about that because I've been lying low and staying off social media for as long as I was working for the government. So. <laughs> Maybe we do it through uh, through your platform there. Um, but I really I look forward to having the conversation again and specifically about anything that your viewers sort of thought we should double click on uh, or if they've got an insight that I need to know. I'm, I'm still learning a lot in the space, but um, my email is davidnightleg at gmail.com. And I'm very happy to uh, interact with anybody that's got a perspective on what we've talked about. And um, I'm also very happy to uh, to show up again. And by then I'll have had your coaching tips on how to have a better response to that question. <laughs> well, uh, two things. One, you are welcome back on this channel anytime. Uh, you're very courageous to put your email out there. I presume you're going to hear from a fair amount of people. So just prepare you for that. But also I know you're on Twitter as well. I don't know how active you are, but that's another way that people can follow you and kind of keep track of your current thoughts. Correct? Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll start posting a few things. I'm really loath to get into any kind of Twitter interactions. I, I, I want to show people the respect of having one-on-one -on -one private interactions where possible, but on this one and a couple other things, I've posted things up and I'll be posting uh, a position paper on this up there. So look forward to. Uh, All right. Great. And, and, and what is your Twitter handle? It's uh, at David Knightleg. Okay, great. So when we edit this, we'll put the your email address and your Twitter handle up there on the screen for folks who who want to follow you in the future, however infrequently or not you are posting. There's no pressure for you to change your, I'm not trying to drag you into the social media world here. Um, David, it has been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for coming on the channel. Pleasure. All right, well, now's the time of the program where we bring in Wealthion's endorsed financial advisors. I've got John Lodra and Mike Preston from New Harbor Financial here. Guys, uh, what an amazing conversation there with David. Um, again, I think probably one of the more um, important themes in terms of what's going to be defining both you know, the investing world going forward, but I think just the world in general. Um, John, let's start with you. Um, what's your reaction to sort of David's overall uh, you know, main points there, but also specifically about his thoughts about a commodity super cycle driving the next couple of decades? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Uh, fascinating conversation, really articulate and, and well-grounded, I think. Um, you know, look, we, we have, uh, we've been big fans of, of real assets uh, in, in many different forms. Uh, natural resources are one real asset, um, real things, real stuff. And ultimately, and this is a pretty, uh, I think, graspable concept for, for, for virtually anybody, regardless of their savvy in financial markets and economics, you know, economic activity ultimately has to be bounded by kind of the finite things of this world, you know, people's time, of course, but also certainly when you're talking about material things and product production, um, the, the natural resources that, that go into those things, be they cars or clothing or um, you name it, um, even inputs to agriculture in the case of still plenty of fossil fuels needed for that fertilizers and things like that. It's a tethering um, counterpoint to the totally uh, inflated in our, in our view, uh, asset prices that we see in the economy today, stock markets and other things. So, you know, we, 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 we see like uh, David, uh, you know, we think we're in the early stages of a, a, a super cycle that is bounded by or supported by 
real practical limits of easily um, obtaining and, and, and harvesting these resources to, to fuel true economic growth, not you know, distorted uh, valuation um, spikes due to kind of monetary policies and things like that. All right, um, Mike, feel free to chime anything in on there. And um, maybe just to John's point about how long you guys have been focused on the importance of hard assets um, in a portfolio. Maybe talk about um, right now the hard assets that you guys are, or, or whatever assets you think are most appropriate that you're currently holding that are supportive of that thesis. Yeah, a grounding factor in a world of central banking madness are real assets or primary wealth, so to speak. And the easiest ones to buy that we talk about with, with most clients and prospects is gold and silver, but it's not just gold and silver. Um, commodities in general as a class look very attractive in a lot of different reasons and for a lot of different reasons. And because it's primary wealth and it is it's it, these tangible assets are outside the reach eventually of central banking money printing. The last decade has been all about financial assets and money printing. And we really think the next decade looks to be about primary tangible wealth. So gold and silver is certainly something that we think should be a core part of people's holdings, maybe around 10% of investable assets, preferably in physical tangible form that you hold close to you where you can get to it quickly. But other things should also be included in tangible assets like real estate and investment property. And oil and gas uh, interest, for instance, um, uh, or, or even equity in a small privately held business. We also like commodities or stocks of companies that produce commodities. We think these will do very well over the next 10 years or, or even more. And uh, we're looking very keenly at the whole index of commodities. There's a the commodities index, the CRB index, for instance, is, is a widely followed index. It's been on a tear throughout 2021, and, and we're looking at that for a pullback for a potential entry. And there's ways to do that even for the average investor. There's some ETFs that you can buy. And you got to be careful about understanding that there's some special tax forms that they generally produce called K1s, but they're not, it's not too big of a hassle and, and it's okay. So Diversified commodities, we still think are undervalued relative to the, you know, the entire stock market or the S&P 500. And uh, we'd be looking to add in those areas. Okay. Um, you know, we've put up a chart. I'll see if I can find a more recent version of it to display here, but uh, by Crescut Capital, which has shown, you know, over the years that uh, commodities roughly now are still incredibly undervalued relative to just sort of general equities. I think the chart uses the S&P 500 uh, as the benchmark um, that has probably improved a little bit, you know, beginning of this year because commodities have moved so much, but they're still um, quite historically undervalued. Um, and also everything that I just talked about with David, you know, if, if the world trade, uh, all the different world trade lines are gonna start getting um, rejiggered here, uh, it's it's hard not to see that that commodities are going to, you know, potentially become just generally more expensive. They're they're going to have a, a higher price point going forward than they've had in the past. This is sort of a fundamental repricing, and part of that is because um, uh, they're going to be being sourced from you know some of these countries that David was talking about, the the more sort of autocratic ones, uh, which tend to have poor uh, economics. Um, and, uh, you know, just that sort of increased global competition for what's left that David and I were talking about. So, um, you know, I just want to underscore here, Mike, that, that there probably is, is likely uh, the nearer term opportunity that, that, you know, as you guys build a portfolio or hoping to get in the next year or two in terms of return. But in terms of a tailwind at our back here, it looks like you know, to go back to the conversation with David about sort of a 30 plus year, you know, commodity super cycle here, um, you know, there could be a very nice long-term tailwind, pretty much the length of almost every investor watching this. It's the rest of our investing careers. Um, and that, that tailwind could be at our backs here in the hard asset space. Now, not that there's probably not gonna be a lot of volatility and a lot of surprises and bumps along the way, but just like um, bonds up until now have had like a 40 year tailwind of just, you know, increasingly lower interest rates, which obviously helps bond prices rise. 
it's been great to be a bond investor the past four decades. I think, and I'd love to get your guys' opinion, do you think that there could be sort of a similar dynamic going forward for the next three to four decades where the commodity investor will say, oh, wow, yeah, this is actually quite a nice, uh, nice general tailwind that's supporting my investment thesis here? Yeah, and it's really hard to predict 30 to 40 years out, isn't it? But, um, you know, you mentioned Crestcat a little while ago. They, they put out a nice chart that shows the relative valuation of commodities compared to financial assets. And it's clear, even based on that chart, that commodities are at a, a 10 or even longer year undervaluation. It's, it's very likely impossible that commodities enjoy a three or four decade outperformance. I, I think it's difficult to predict that far. And I don't honestly think we even have to. I think if we get the next 10 years right, um, we'll do very well and we'll be able to make some adjustments as we see new data. However, it would not surprise me. 40 years of a tailwind with interest rates going down. Um, now that's going to be a headwind with interest rates going up. Um, should be supportive of commodities for a long, long time. All right. Well, John, let me use that as an opportunity to, to pivot to you here. Um, getting back to the inflation topic, which is, you know, that's the big issue this year, right? That's the thing that's really kind of, um, if, 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 if it's, things are different now, they're different because inflation's at a 40-year high uh, and, and not getting brought under control yet. Um, the Federal Reserve has had to, um, you know, very publicly announce it's going to switch from a quantitative easing, easing to a quantitative tightening program. And the Fed, for the first time in years, just raised the interest rate uh, last month and said it's going to raise rates another at least six plus times in this year alone. Um, adding fuel to that fire, um, uh, Lael Brainerd, who's one of the Fed governors, um, she just came out today and said that um, she sees the Fed beginning to uh, start its balance sheet reduction, which is the same, the fancy word for quantitative tightening, uh, soon. And then that's going to happen at, quote, a rapid pace. Um, she also said, quote, the Fed is prepared to take stronger action on inflation. So the Fed is sort of doubling down and saying, hey, look, we super duper mean it. We're really going to um, tackle, we're going to get really aggressive in fighting inflation. And what I think is, is interesting about this is Lael Brainerd is about the biggest dove that sits on the Fed. And she's using very hawkish language here. So I wonder if they even brought her out to kind of make a point, like we're going to bring out our, our conventionally most dovish person to deliver the really hard news to the markets here. Um, what, do you, what do you think about this, this increasingly hawkish tone the Fed is taking here? Yeah, Adam, I, I'll, I'll speak to that in just a minute. I think it's a great point. I, I just wanted to kind of piggyback on the commodity discussion we just had. I, I just sent you a chart that I came across. So Goldman Sachs called for a you know, commodity super cycle, I think in, in late 2020. And they recently came out with a kind of a reinforcement of that call, even despite the, the, the strong rise in commodity prices. And there's a chart here that kind of accompanied that um, recently here where, where it shows kind of the, um, you know, kind of the inventory tracking of, of different, um, you know, oil, oil, crude oil products. And you can see here that there's been a steady decline in those stocks, the stocks meaning inventories, not stocks as in uh, share stocks of, of companies. Um, and that speaks to the supply demand imbalance and, and the likely need for massive investment in all kinds of production, um, you know, expansions and, and development of new resource um, uh, supplies, uh, whether it's new oil fields or new, um, you know, uh, metal mines or things like that. And you know, I'm very cognizant of the environmental aspects here. I, I consider myself an environmentalist in, 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 in a very sincere way, but there is no getting away from the, the reliance on this global economy from real things, real energy supplies, fossil fuels still. And I think this paints a really strong picture of the likely continuation of a commodity you know, cycle to the upside here because of the supply demand imbalance. Great, and John, sorry, just before you pivot to talking about the Fed, um, it's a great chart and it supports the point that I made in the discussion with David, um, where I was citing Rick Rule, you know, who was saying that, look, even if we got religion tomorrow about um, doing everything right uh, in terms of regards to, to resource management, he said, we're still on track to have some pretty serious 
shortages or at least you know, tight supply situations with a lot of key commodities because of the historic underinvestment in CapEx that we've made in a lot of these sectors. And, and this chart does a great job of actually visualizing that. So, um, you know, the piper at the end of the day always has to be paid. And it seems like we're entering a period here where we're going to be paying the piper because not only are we going to be having to deal with um, the, you know, uh, lower levels of supply, lower stocks um, because of the underinvestment in previous years. But now that we're, you know, at this point geopolitically where players are beginning to say, well, I'm not going to provide you access, you know, to my resources, um, that's just going to exacerbate the situation. Yeah, exactly. So on your comment there. So yeah, really interesting comments, especially coming from Lael Baird, um, because she traditionally is viewed as one of the more dovish uh, members. Look, the, the very first tool in the Fed's toolkit is words, jawboning as the you know phrase is. And I think they're really afraid about what, what has been wrought here in terms of the, the situation with inflation and you know record levels of Uber, Uber records of, of, of liquidity sloshing around the system. And they know they got to remove that, right? Um, I think what they're trying to do here with words is, is suck some of the exuberance out of the system so they don't have to maybe do as much of the real hard work of actually removing stuff from the system, uh, you know, uh, because they're probably very fearful. I'm just giving you my opinion here, our opinion here, but they're they're probably deathly afraid of something really, really breaking uh, because they've built a pretty, these, these uh, liquidity measures have built a pretty, pretty shaky uh, house of cards. And any means they can do that by words without actually having to do the hard work of, of Smashing things, I think, is is uh, you know helpful to them. That's my my quick take on that. Yeah, there's a famous Winston Churchill quote who said, "It's always better to jaw 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 than to war war war," which basically is you know, look, if you can advance your your objectives by talking, it's much better than having to do so via military action. I would say the Fed's mantra would be, "It's better to jaw 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 than to raise raise raise." <laughs> You know, it's the last thing they want to do. So if they can walk the markets wherever they want the markets to be um, based on the expectations they're setting by talking, they'll always do that before they have to take action. But um, anyways, if we're listening to their words, at least they're saying, look, we're super serious. You know, we're coming here with all these different rate hikes um, to your point about something breaking. Uh, I don't want to go into this discussion in depth because we actually just had it in the live Q&A that we just recorded earlier today uh, with you guys and Lance Roberts. And for folks who aren't watching or who didn't see that, um, we are piloting a new uh, segment here on Wealthion where we're getting all of our financial advisors together at one time and letting people ask live questions of them uh, through YouTube's live stream service. Um, if you didn't get a chance to watch today's, I think it went pretty darn well. I'll let you guys uh, chime in. But if you haven't watched that yet, folks, and want to, uh, I'll put a link up to it right here. But it was pretty excellent. We covered a lot of territory, uh, including what I'm about to mention here. Um, so, uh, you know, John, we talked about you know, how, how far can the Fed really raise rates here until rates get so high that the wheels really start coming off uh, the both the markets and, and potentially the economy. Um, and there's Definitely, I would say some doubt on your guys's end, and you, I mentioned you guys and, and Lance, um, which is that uh, while the Fed's talking an aggressive game here, um, it may need to pivot at some point in time because things are just getting too rocky. Now, that being said, if it does and it hasn't brought inflation under control, you know, going back to quantitative easing is only going to make inflation worse. So it's it's kind of really, I and mean, we've talked about the Fed being cornered or in a box for a long time, but we're we're really beginning to get close to that point here where the Fed is going to have to pick its poison and then we're all going to have to live with whatever that decision is. Um, I, guess, I guess where I'm going with this is, is um, how are you guys, you know, looking at that in terms of having to position a portfolio for this? Um, Mike, wh why don't we start with you? I really think it's pretty impossible to tell exactly where the market's going to break or how it's going to react or what the path is going to look like, Adam. I think that we can say unequivocally that the market is more extremely overvalued than it's ever been before. And, and it stayed there longer than before. And it seems like it's never going to drop. 
You know, that's what that's what the sentiment is like now, that it's a bulletproof market. You know, and, and we have been reduced to talking almost only about the Fed, what the Fed says. And John's right, the Fed's first tool is job owning. You know, I, the Fed was really created to be the emergency lender of last resort. Now the Fed micromanages the stock market, you know, and that's the real risk. So we we have been positioned for a, a dangerous market for some time. We're, we're tactical in some asset classes, but we have had a, a pretty healthy cash position for quite a long time. And I think that's the only way really to react to a crash-prone market that has been riddled with so much intervention for so long so that it's really the only game in town to talk about is what the Fed's going to do next. And anyone that tells you they know exactly how that's going to shake out is, is you know, not telling the truth. I think mathematically, you can, you can see that the, the market could fall by two-thirds or more easily and still not be undervalued. That's how overvalued this market is. So we have, in terms of positioning, we've held cash as an option value, but we've also been attracted to some other asset classes uh, over time. Most, most interest, and most notably, recently in the last month or so, we've been actually interested in bonds for the first time. You know, we, we have done some tactical trades and bonds before. And I should say straight out that we're not interested in bonds for a long-term hold here. We're interested in a trade. Last year, we did a quick trade in long-term bonds. And we just put another one on again just a couple of weeks ago. In long-term, greater than 20-year U.S. Treasury bonds, we bought them and sold a call option against the ETF because, well, we think that rates moving up to around 250 on the 10-year bond, that's 2.50%, we think it's reaching a short-term limit and is likely to pause. So therefore, we put that position on for about 10% of accounts. Secondly, the shorter-term end of the curve with the inversion that we've recently seen in bonds has become more attractive. Two-year bonds have approached 2.5%, between 2.4 and 2.5% for two-year U.S. Treasury bonds. With that kind of return, there's not much reason to take risk, in our opinion, in corporates or low-yielding bonds. And so we put a relatively small position on in two-year U.S. Treasury notes. For the Really, for the first time in a long, long time, have we gotten interested in anything other than T-bills. So those two things, for about 20% of portfolios, we added just in the last few weeks. All right, great. You know, I'm thinking as you're talking about this, so um, we... <laughs> You know, if rates continue to go substantially higher from here, and, and I should mark that today, the 30-year fixed average mortgage, mortgage rate just crested 5%. Um, look, uh, if we end up in a world of, of higher interest rates here, it, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be very surprising for a lot of folks. It's going to be very painful for a lot of folks. I mean, the whole system is has become completely dependent over the past two plus decades on these rock bottom, historically low interest rates. Um, and there's, a, there's honestly a lot of parts of the economy that might not be able to even function um, at, at rates of, of the sort that I'm talking about, or at least, at least the current participants aren't, and, and they're going to have to be cleared out and replaced by somebody else. And we talk a fair amount of this program about sort of the destruction that higher interest rates could wreak on the system here. And if you guys want to add anything to that today, great. But but what I'm just thinking about is, you know, we may actually get back to a time where, yes, the cost of capital is going to be higher than it has been for the past several decades. And that will remove certain options off the table, but it will place certain options back on the table, right? Like housing prices might come down to the point where they're maybe a lot more affordable now for younger people and, and just people who aren't gazillionaires to actually get back into the housing market. That might actually not be such a bad thing once we've gone through the pain. Secondly, we may get back to a world, you know, Mike, if, if, if interest rates on relatively safe instruments like long dated U.S. Treasuries, you know, continue going higher, where a retiree might actually be able to make some money on a fixed income, right, which they've been they've been robbed of that opportunity over the past 15 plus years. So, you know, it's not going to be all bad in the end. It may be pretty bad on the way to the end, but John, I'll, I'll give this to you, but it, you know, is, is what I'm saying here sort of resonating in any way with you? 
Yeah, certainly is. And, you know, this is a big, big, long cycle that we are, I think, near the tail end. If you look at interest rates, they've been pretty much going down for the last 40 years. Um, you know, that's a huge tailwind that most, you know, adults today have have witnessed maybe unknowingly, um, you know, um, that you can't repeat that over and over again. There's got to be a reversion in that trend. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of um, misallocation of resources under the uh, under the zero interest rate environment uh, that that get flushed from the system, whether it's buildings that were built on speculative um, merits and they can't sustain themselves from a, a revenue standpoint or, you know, companies that have been gobbled up by shareholders and bond investors that will never see a path to profitability. There's all kinds of excesses that will have to be flushed from the system if, if, if they're allowed to. There's been plenty of attempts to keep that from happening in, in the last couple of crises. Um, but yeah, it, it's not gonna be a quick overnight thing. It's gonna be a, a resorting of things. Um, you know, the, this idea of when will the system break if in, in the raising of interest rates, we just don't know. And, and I, I, it kind of brought me back to my days as a, as a kid when, you know, on a sleepy summer day, I, I found great fun with my friends, you know, blowing up a balloon and, and trying to guess when the thing will pop, right? As, um, you know, you just don't know. You know, some balloons you get, you get to blow up bigger than others. Maybe there's a little imperfection in the, in the, the rubber of the balloon and it, it pops before you expect it. That's kind of like what I would analogize what we're probably looking at here. There's a very unpredictable uh, bursting uh, threshold and, and what we will be looking for as the signs of cracks may not even be looking at the right thing. It might be something over away here in left field, like the repo market blowing up in, in late, uh, geez, I lost track of late 19 or late 20. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of whack-a-mole kind of like things that could pop up out of nowhere that we don't even, we're not even watching for. That is the evidence that the, the, the balloon's about to, to pop. All right. Yeah. And that's what makes sort of risk management such a high priority here. And we've talked about this in, in past episodes, so I won't get into it deep here with you guys, but a big reason why Wealthion you know, has endorsed you guys for so many years um, is because of your focus on, you know, hey, there's a lot of potential outcomes here that, that we just can't predict, right? And so we're going to make sure that we create a portfolio that, you know, covers the greatest percentage of what could happen and, you know, gives us enough insurance that even if our main thesis is wrong, you know, we're not taking on any two big bets somewhere in the portfolio that if that bet's wrong, it sinks the entire thing. Um, all right. Well, look, in, in wrapping things up here, guys, you know, I think we've done a good job of reminding people um, all the reasons of why this is such a challenging and, and yes, treacherous time for investors. Um, I'm just going to remind folks that, um, uh, as I do every week, you know, highly recommend you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor here. Don't go it alone unless you are an extremely experienced uh, investor already. Um, and if you've got a great advisor, stick with them. They're worth their weight in gold, literally. Uh, but if you don't, or if you want the counsel of a uh, you know, second opinion of a, a firm that uh, you know thinks just like John and Mike and, and the folks that we have here on this program, um, New Harbor and a few other firms uh, offer free uh, consultations where you can just sit down with them uh, and they literally just tell them all about yourself, your goals, you know, how you're currently allocated and whatnot, and they will just tell you what they think you should do. Um, no strings attached, no commitment to work with them. Um, it's just a free public service they offer. If you're interested in learning more about that, stick around to the end of this video. Um, guys, as we wrap, th wrap things up here, um, you guys, you know, week after week, day after day, are talking to real people, just like the viewers here. Um, in fact, many of the viewers here are clients yours. Uh, and, you know, they're calling you with their needs, with their concerns. Um, just want to give you guys a chance to give some parting counsel to people here. Um, based upon what you're hearing from the folks that you're having those real-time discussions with right now, um, any bits of parting advice to help people think through whatever the biggest, you know, concerns or um, uh, you know questions that you guys are getting called with these days? Yeah, I would just say don't be afraid about getting it exactly right. A lot of people are concerned and they're really they're really worried about doing all, you know all one thing or all another. Many people are are pretty fully invested in a, in a traditional or passive portfolio, like a 60, 40 
portfolio, or they might have concentrated stock that they've had for a lot of years, sometimes decades. My best advice would be don't worry about leaving some upside on the table. That's the biggest thing. People seem to be worried about getting it wrong. Uh, I don't think there's any way to get it exactly right. If you're, if you're moving from a more traditional invested stance to one that's much less, which is what we think is appropriate right now, it's either best, you know, it, it, it's usually best to, to do it in chunks or to talk with an advisor that you trust. You can hand off that responsibility to them and they can you know, do it in a responsible manner. And if you're not able to, to completely move out of risk to the level that you want to, um, we can use hedges like options, particularly on legacy, highly appreciated stock. So I don't know, from a psychological perspective, I think that people are feeling uncomfortable and they just, they don't know what to do. And I think that I could, I could say truthfully that we don't know exactly when and what to do either. We know that we're in the right neighborhood for reducing risk. We know that it's probably a smart idea to add precious metals exposure. So all I can say is, you know, feel free to give us a call or actually fill out the form on the Wealthy on website. And we'd be happy to have, you know, a no obligation consultation. We do these all day long. It's never a sales call or our sales pitch. We honestly want to give some good advice, some good objective advice and um, take a deep breath and, you know, don't worry about getting it exactly right. I think that's great counsel there, Mike. And, you know, as you were talking, I was also just thinking too, that, that, you know, I think what I would say to people is, look, you know, go talk to an advisor, whoever it is, but, but consider it like, you know, just go, go get a portfolio CAT scan. Like, even if you think you're well positioned right now, just go and just get an experienced uh, advisor's viewpoint of, hey, is there, is there hidden risk uh, in this portfolio that maybe you're not aware of, right? Because uh, I'll let you guys correct me, but, you know, when I ask you, what are some of the most common pitfalls you see when, when somebody calls you for the first time, you know, you say, well, we find that people are just, they've got way more exposure to either a certain asset class or in some cases, a specific asset, you know, maybe it's company stock that they have or whatnot, but they just have, you know, very little diversity in their portfolio, given what the, the macro situation is calling for. So my two cents here in parting would be folks, just, just go get that portfolio CAT scan. Again, it's totally free. Um, didn't cost you anything. It just gives you the opportunity to hear from an experienced advisor if they feel like you've gotten some some blind spots in terms of you know risks that might be in your portfolio that that aren't you know burning brightly on your radar right now. John, I'll give you the last word here before we wrap things up. Yeah, I totally agree with with what Mike and you just said, Adam. You know, the one other thing I just say is, you know, folks, bring bring it back to your situation, right? And and um, you know, we work with clients from all walks of life and, and uh, uh, statuses in terms of financial security. And, um, you know, one's own situation can, can affect their own thinking, right? Like, so for example, you know, folks that feel like they're behind schedule in terms of preparing for retirement or saving enough, you know, they might come at it with the mindset of, I need to get all the return I can because I'm running out of time. Um, the reality is markets don't really care about that. The markets are going to, you know, go up or go down, irrespective of what one needs. And, and sometimes that feeling or a compulsion of need might keep someone invested more aggressively or, or more for a longer period of time than they might otherwise in their guts feel is right. So taking a step back and understanding that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you might have someone who has a decent amount of financial security, maybe even a surplus of security, yet they still feel that that desire and need to, to want to you know, chase markets higher in a late stage. And and in reality, um, they really don't need to be taking that risk. You know, perhaps their biggest risk is undoing a, a good thing, right? So it really comes down to, and, and the reality is that risk environment isn't different for, for two different people. The, the risk environment is what it is. It's either at two ends of the, the, the stream, it's very high risk or it's very low risk and lots of shades in between. This idea that, that our industry does a, a job dispensing that, you know, if you take more risk in your portfolio, you're gonna get higher returns. That may work over a hundred year period, a 50 year period, but there are times like we believe right now where that is absolutely not guaranteed. In fact, it's likely to be guaranteed. I say likely, cause there are no guarantees here. You know, that taking more risk is just gonna invite more pain uh, from, from this current environment. 
Yeah, that's the famous Jim Grant saying, uh, you know, there are periods of time where you can really get some risk-free return. Um, he's looking at the markets right now and saying, gosh, this looks like a period of return-free risk. Right. Um, all right. Well, very well said, gentlemen. We'll wrap it up here. Folks, if you want to schedule one of those free consultations uh, with uh, the endorsed Wealthion advisors like the guys here at New Harbor, just go to Wealthion.com or stick around for the next 30 seconds. We, we give you all the details here at the end of the uh, this video, and it only takes you a couple of seconds to set up one of those uh, consultations. Um, if you enjoyed this video and would like us to see, we'd like to see uh, Cal the caliber of guests like David back on this program. Um, and this was the first time that, that uh, David's appeared here. Um, and we were very, very lucky to get him. Um, please do me a favor, hit the like button and then click on the subscribe button. I'm super happy to say that uh, the Wealthy on YouTube channel just surpassed 100,000 YouTube subscribers this week, which is a phenomenal accomplishment in just a single year uh, being in business. And uh, that is entirely due to the support of you viewers here. Thank you so much. And it's because we have that large of an audience and that engaged of an audience that I can get speakers like David, you know, who are halfway around the world. Uh, he had just appeared on CBS News a few hours before I got to talk to him, um, but he was willing to, you know, take a break and, and, and clear his schedule to talk with me. Because this channel is really, you know, I was going to say it punches above its weight. I think it has for its whole career, but it's really becoming a media force. Um, and it's that size and engagement we have that lets me get bigger and better guests on the show. So again, that's all due to your support. Thank you so much. All right. Well, guys, what happens between here and next week? Uh, nobody can predict with certainty, but we will be tracking it here together and making it sen making sense of it for everybody when we get back together next week. John and Mike, thanks for joining us. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Adam. We'll see you next week. Well, next week, Adam. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth, and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.